Now then, let's uh, turn together to the passage that we've read, Daniel and chapter 2. And we read in verse 1 that in the second year of the king's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Now, so far in our study of this book, we've seen how Daniel and his three friends were taken into captivity, uh, taken from Jerusalem and into Babylon. And we looked at the pressure that was put on Daniel and his friends to renounce their former life, uh, to renounce their God, really, and to conform to Babylon and its way of life and culture, which was, of course, very godless. Now, many would crack under these circumstances, and it's only fair to say that we've got reason to believe from the book that there were many people who just didn't stand. seems quite obvious that the number who did stand uh, were few at first anyway. But uh, Daniel did stand firm. And he stood because, well, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 8, you'll remember we come there to the heart of uh, what Daniel was all about, which is his own heart. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's delicacies. So he stood fast, as did his three friends, and the result was that uh, God blessed them. They excelled in their university training, and were told that when these three years of training were finished, that they were examined, and that they came in and served the king. In other words, they were appointed into government in Babylon, which was quite a, a remarkable outcome. But really, it's worth stressing that it wasn't just Nebuchadnezzar's exams that they passed, and he personally examined them. It's worthwhile noting that he was a very able man himself, but it wasn't just his exam that they passed, but they were effectively passing the exam of the king of heaven. He was testing them supremely, and uh, God rewarded their obedience. In verse 17 of chapter 1, we read that as for these four young men, God gave them that's in addition to what they already had, knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And as well as that, Daniel was given the special gift of understanding visions and dreams, which, of course, is going to become important. But really, what we see here is God blessing obedience. And uh, it's an important principle that he always does. He blesses obedience. If we pass our tests, God will raise us up higher. Even a call like grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will only grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ if we pass the tests that we are given. If we fail to pass them, then we become stunted. Now, what usually happens then is that we have to be retaught and we have to resit. And we keep having to be retaught and resit until we pass the exam, until we learn the lesson, and then 
we will grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The life of the Christian is about advancing, but sometimes you can cease advancing. You can be stuck in a wilderness for 40 years when you ought to be conquering the promised land. Uh, so let's learn the lesson that we need to learn our lessons. And we need to pass our exams in order to move higher. And because they stood, God was able to use them again. Now you'll remember, of course, that although Daniel's at the heart of the book and Nebuchadnezzar's at the heart of a, a good part of it early on anyway, really the conflict is deeper than that. Uh, you remember that we began the study of the book of Daniel by looking at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. That's where the real background to the book lies. The book is really a clash or a conflict between two worldviews or even between two cities or two civilizations. Uh, the civilization of God and the civilization of man. Or if you like, Jerusalem and Babylon. And all the time, even when things look pretty grim for the church, which is essentially being brought into captivity here, all the time, God is actually furthering his own cause, even when it appears low, and he is hindering the opposition, even when it appears to flourish. Now, it's important to keep that wider view in your mind. It's important to keep it in your own heart when you consider the world and the state of the nation and the state of the church and all these things. All the time, uh, God is actually furthering his own purpose and he is in hindering the purpose of his enemies. The reason it's important to remember is, first of all, to cheer you, to console you when things are dark. Also, uh, just so that you have a proper lens through which to understand things. It's quite easy to see how sometimes uh, you can look at things and feel extremely discouraged, but God's advancing things. The victory has already been established. It's, it's not up in the air. The cross has been endured. The Lord has the victory. He is already enthroned. We know how things are going to pan out. We don't know how they're going to get there, but we know how they're going to pan out. And the book of Daniel just encourages us in these things. It starts so grim, but yet God works out his own purpose. Now, Daniel has hardly begun work in government uh, when a crisis comes. And it's not the kind you would have expected. It just comes in the form of disturbing dreams that the king has uh, which end up in very sleepless nights. Now, in a way, that may seem a small thing, but certainly it's not a small thing for Nebuchadnezzar himself. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been troubled with dreams or with bad dreams. If you have recurring nightmares, it can be a serious problem. Um, they can distress you when you have them, and if you know every night when you go to bed that you're going to have this, it's not very pleasant at all. And that seems to be the situation. I mean, we often think it was one dream that he had, but the Hebrew is in the plural. He has a series of dreams. He obviously has one that troubles him particularly. It itself may be a recurring nightmare. But he's plagued. And he loses sleep. And of course, it's important if the king who's having them is a tyrant, which Nebuchadnezzar is. He's a despot. 
By tyrant, or by using the word tyrant there, I don't necessarily mean that he is evil. I'm just simply using it as a technical political term. He has absolute power. Now, very often, um, well, there's an old saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, of course, amongst us sinful humans, that is true. Absolute power does corrupt absolutely. And uh, generally, people who have it uh, tend to wield it very badly. And certainly they were unpredictable. I mean, you see that through the book. These rulers here would do what they liked when they liked. I mean, the idea of cutting these wise men in pieces is nothing to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, They would literally tear them apart limb from limb, sometimes hacked, the limbs hacked off, other times just tied to bent trees which were released and the bodies ripped. That kind of thing was nothing to them, is it? Nothing at all. Now, bad dreams come from anxiety. Uh, In Ecclesiastes, we're told that a dream comes through much activity. And I think the word activity there is a reference to activity of the mind. Very often when your mind is overactive, uh, you begin to dream. And that's especially the case if you carry particular responsibilities. There's an old saying, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. And how often that's so. And the result is often that you just lack sleep. We looked at a famous incident of that not that long ago. Uh, A young girl who was in a situation similar to Daniel. The young woman Esther, who of course God raised to be a queen. Uh, We saw the mysteries of that providence not that long ago. But uh, that book of providence turned on a on a particular providence one night when King Ahasuerus couldn't sleep and he asked for the chronicles of the kingdom of the Persians to be brought before him. It was there that he discovered what Mordecai had done and he then honored him. But it's interesting, you see, that the king could not sleep and he asks for the government records. Now, that's not normally what you would ask for when you couldn't sleep. Uh, But it just shows the kind of thing, you see. It's just a mind that just keeps going and keeps going and turning over things, and there's no rest. Now, as a general point, uh, we need to be careful anyway about that kind of thing. We've got to watch out about being too careful, or to change the word, um, too full of cares. The word anxiety is care full, full of cares. Uh, Jesus said to Martha, 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 you are full of cares. But Mary has the one thing needful. And we've got to be careful that we're not too careful. God doesn't mean us to be anxious. God doesn't mean us to be sleepless. Now, it's one thing uh, to carry responsibility and to bear it properly And um, to be sensible about that, it's another thing to be driven under by it and to lose all rest. And Psalm 127 tells us that. It was a a counsel to Solomon uh, when he was building the Lord's house and when he was trying to raise a family. It was a counsel to him. Uh, God gives his beloved sleep. It's vain for you to rise up too early or to stay up too late to feed on the bread of sorrow. In other words, uh, you've even lost your appetite. All you've got to 
All you've got is your anxiety, which keeps you going. No, he gives his beloved sleep. It's interesting that the original name of Solomon was Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. And uh, therefore, I think that that expression in the psalm, he gives his beloved sleep, is a very personal message to Solomon, that the Lord will give you sleep. Uh, so you too, make sure you're not over-anxious about things that you ought not to be. We, we need to learn um, to make sure that the cares of the day don't become the cares of the night. And we have to make sure that uh, when we are going to bed, we roll our cares or our burdens upon the Lord. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain you. Now, that's a very simple but important thing to do. Don't be anxious. Be careful for nothing, Jesus says, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which passes all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds. Now the problem is that Nebuchadnezzar didn't know anything about that, and neither maybe do you. Maybe you don't have that recourse, you don't have that channel, you don't know the God who is the God of peace to those who really know him. The normal course of action for these kings were, was just to have entertainments and diversions laid on for them at night. But of course, uh, sometimes these things can be of no use. And this is one of these occasions. You see, the problem is that Nebuchadnezzar knows that these dreams are not ordinary. They're quite extraordinary. He knows that they have something to do with himself they have a recurring theme. Something is being smashed to pieces. Of course, I didn't, I'm conscious, I didn't read the dream with you. Most of you will know it, but essentially the dream consists of a human figure, a composite human figure, and a little stone comes and smashes it to oblivion, and the stone itself becomes all in all. Now, Nebuchadnezzar can't help but feel that there's some kind of reference to himself in that dream. Not that he's the stone, uh, but that he somehow is the figure. It must be speaking to him. And if he really feels that, if he feels that there's a significance in this, then he must be concluding that there's a sense in which the dream is given to him. That it's not simply something that's arising from his heart, but something that's coming in from elsewhere. In other words, that the dream is sent. And of course it was sent. It's not just the interpretation of the dream that came from God. The dream itself came from God. God had spoken to heathen people like this before. In Genesis 26, you have God speaking to King uh, Abimelech of the Philistines through a dream. You also, of course, famously, later in the book of Genesis, have God speaking to Pharaoh, the great king of Egypt, directly in a dream. Here, he's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. I suppose the question can be raised amongst ourselves, does God still speak uh, through dreams? Well, it may sound a political answer, but the answer to that is yes and no. He doesn't give revelation as he used to through dreams. But he can still use dreams in providence. 
He can still bring things before your mind's eye. He can convict you of sin in your dreams. He can bring certain situations before you. Of course he can. Just as he can use anything else in life, so he can use dreams. And in fact, that very anxiety that I may, that, I've, that I spoke about earlier, it may not be something that um, is just the result of overwork or um, simple anxiety. It may be something more than that. I mean, it may be the case that God is using these dreams to communicate with you. Maybe he is troubling your soul. Maybe sometimes your dreams have something to do with suffering and with pain. Maybe even with something like being cast into hell itself. Well, you need some kind of alleviation from that distress too. And your first port of call shouldn't be medicine. Now, I'm conscious that there are certain medical conditions that may result in that, fair enough. But that should never be your first port of call. God himself is speaking. Or he may be through these dreams. And certainly that's what Nebuchadnezzar felt, that these dreams meant something. Now, if we feel uh, that God is speaking, we need to do something about it. And uh, that's what Nebuchadnezzar felt too. Uh, something was going on, he can't explain it, so he consults the wise men. They are called here in verse 2, an amalgam of magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. Now, it's easy to, spy, to despise all these terms and to think, oh, well, these are just conjurers, essentially. But we shouldn't do that. Again, you could think of the ancient Celtic Druids and think of them as just people who engaged in hocus-pocus and stuff like that. And, of course, to some extent they were, but they were very learned and able people too. And so were these, a priestly class that uh, had a, a very powerful place in society in those days. They had special skills in astrology and in drugs. The Greek word used to translate the Aramaic word here for sorcerers is the word uh, pharmacy, essentially. That's what it is. So they specialized in states of minds and conditions and things of that kind and trying to get into the subconscious and find out what was actually going on. They were, of course, expert astronomers. They knew the length of the year to within a few minutes. Uh, they studied the stars in detail. Of course, they believed that the stars had something to do uh, with the way we felt and behaved. That's not as ridiculous as it sounds. After all, the moon has the power to suck up the ocean. Uh, people, had, people thought that perhaps it had power over the way people thought, too. Maybe the stars generally did. Like I say, it's easy just to rubbish that stuff. But they had reasons to believe the things that they believed. They had manuals for interpreting dreams. Well, so did people like Freud and Jung. I mean, they believed, too, that if you thought of certain motifs quite often, then it probably signified something in your life. Well, so did these people. There's a religious element in it, but you get what I'm saying. These people are not quacks in the sense that we would think they were. They were learned and able people. But, of course, they didn't really have the answer. And most people probably knew they didn't, that they were just groping in the dark. 
It's interesting how many people consult their horoscopes and to some extent live by them. They engage in palm reading, tarot cards, Ouija boards, uh, seances. I don't know to what extent they believe it, but in some way they clearly do. In some way they clearly do. Nebuchadnezzar has obviously reached a point, because God's dealing with him too, God's dealing with him too, Nebuchadnezzar's reached a point where he's not really happy with the general answers that he gets to most of these things. He decides that this time he wants his dream revealed as well as the answer. Now I'm conscious that most people are under the impression that Nebuchadnezzar had actually forgotten what his dream was. And I think that's because the way in which the uh, King James Bible translated uh, the decree is gone from me. They translated it as the thing is gone from me. Um, and they took it as a reference to the dream. In other words, I've forgotten the dream. But I think this translation catches it right in verse 5 when it says, my decision is firm. The word essentially means, really, uh, my decree or my word is gone from me. Not in the sense of I've forgotten the message, but the decree is issued from me. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, then um, you'll be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. I think that's the best way to understand it. After all, if you're going to take the thing is gone from me as a reference to the dream, in other words, if you believe that he actually didn't remember the dream, I, I, I think that there is a problem with that. Because it's hard to be meaningfully troubled by a dream you don't remember. It's hard to be meaningfully troubled by a dream that you don't even remember. In other words, you could have woken up in the morning feeling a bit anxious and maybe a a bit aware that something happened. But you see, if you don't remember what it was at all, how can it really trouble you? So I think he does know the dream, but he hasn't got a clue what the dream means. But the interesting thing, you see, is that in connection with this whole thing, the king decides to test the wise men. And why not? Um, If they're really in touch with the gods, well, let them show it. If their books and their manuals about the interpretation of dreams and all that stuff, if they're all real, if they are all revelations from the gods, well... (laughs) Prove it then. Maybe he's come to suspect that it's one thing to give an interpretation of a dream when you've given all the details, but it's quite another to be able to reveal what the dream actually was in the first place. Well, do that then. Do that. And sometimes in life, you know, we need to know the credentials of the people who are teaching us. If our questions are deep, we want to know who's going to answer them. Are they people we can genuinely trust, people we can rely on? In other words, in most of your own lives, I don't say you consult horoscopes or anything of that kind. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But in most of our lives, most of the time, it's okay for us. Uh, I'm not justifying it, but you may just get along by reading your horoscope or by reading a tarot card or whatever. Um, Maybe most of the time you can get by with a religion that soothes you with the sound of bells and with nice smells, a high church ritual, the sweetness of Christmas and all the 
festivities of Easter. All these things might be okay until you're really sick or until you're really dying. These things might console when the pain's not all that deep. But when the problem is real and when you feel God is confronting you with something, when you feel that there's a message coming to you that you're going to be scattered into oblivion, when you feel that the pains of hell are taking hold upon you, when you're finding grief and trouble, you want somebody who can give you an answer. You don't want the usual stuff. You don't want the usual bland and meaningless rituals. You don't want platitudes from the pulpit, from books, or from elsewhere. You need the real thing. You need the truth. It's the truth you need. Ultimately, it's the truth you want. It's the truth you need. You need somebody who can give it to you. And he needs to know that these people are able to give it. After all, it's interesting what he says in verse 9. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. In other words, till the situation turns around. You're in a stew, you're in a pickle. But he says, tell me the dream. Notice this. And I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. In other words, I'm fed up of what you're saying all the time. You tell me what the dream is and then I know that you can interpret dreams rather than put your own construction on them. Who do you go to? I mean, let's suppose that the state of your soul is troubling you now. Let's suppose for a minute that you are becoming anxious about your life generally. And it's not just a normal run-of-the-mill anxiety about a job or home or something like that. It's deeper than that. Your own soul is bothering you. Eternity is beginning to bother you. The sense of appearing before God, your creator, is beginning to bother you. You're losing sleep about it yourself. Well, who are you going to go to? Who are you going to ask? Are you going to go to a Jehovah's Witness? Are you going to go to a Mormon? Or are you going to go to an imam? Who? A psychologist? A psychiatrist? Even if you are going to pick up a Bible, sometimes maybe you feel at a bit of a loss and you say, like the Ethiopian eunuch said when he was on his way back to Ethiopia, the Chancellor of the Exchequer there, and he had been confronted powerfully with the message of the gospel in Jerusalem. And he was reading Isaiah 53 in his chariot. And Philip, of course, the evangelist, came along beside him. And Philip said to him, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch said, how can I understand unless someone interprets it for me? Well, uh, that's absolutely true. How can we understand unless someone interprets it for us? But who is the interpreter? Well, indeed, there are uh, many ministers, many teachers, and many expositors. And I suppose it's fair to ask of all of them, well, do you know your own stuff? Do you know this God? Have you encountered him yourself? But you really have to go behind that, and we have to recognize the great Protestant truth that ultimately for the interpretation of the Bible we are not dependent upon any mere man or woman. We are dependent upon the Spirit of God who is able to illuminate all our minds if we but ask Him. 
if we humble ourselves, in other words, before the one true and living God and open the scripture before him and ask him, show me, Lord, the meaning of these things. Show me the way of salvation. Show me how I can find forgiveness for my sins. Show me how I can find a new direction in my life. Show me, Lord, how I can find spiritual healing for myself and for my family. He'll show you. He'll show you the path of life. He'll show you the fullness of joy that there is at his right hand. He'll show you these things. If we ask, it shall be given. If we seek, we shall find. If we knock, it shall be opened. Any fool can ask a question. You've got to stick around to get the right answer. Pilate famously, in his interview of Jesus, uh, came to a critical point when Jesus, of course, spoke about the truth. He who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate says, what is truth? What is truth? Quidest veritas. It's effectively an anagram because if you change it round, it becomes the man standing before you. It's an interesting thing because that was the answer. The answer to his question is the man standing before you. Yes, but he didn't stick around to find out, you see. When he asked the question, what is truth, he breezed his way past Christ. And he tried again to wrestle with the multitude, but he ought to have stayed where he was. When you're in the presence of the God of Scripture, stay where you are until you get an answer, because the answer is there. And that really is the essence of what I'm telling you, that if you are troubled, the answer is in this book. And the Spirit of God will reveal that to you. So if you have your doubts about me or any other teacher of God's word, you've got the answer yourself in front of you. Use it. Ask the Spirit of the Lord to show you these things. So at least it's a good thing that Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to see through the people around him. They don't know. They don't know the real answers to the real questions. But of course, like the tyrant he is, he loses his temper very easily. He commands that all the leading government officials be rounded up and they be put to death. And that includes Daniel and his three friends. Tyrannical purges like this are, they've always been around. I mentioned absolute power. Of course, Stalin could do this kind of thing on a much larger scale. Stalin could just liquidate thousands of people just at a whim if he smelt that there was the slightest indifference to himself. Well, there's this kind of thing here. And so Arioch, the captain of the king's guards, he oversees this procedure. And he comes, of course, to Daniel. And Daniel stops to ask him what it is that's going on. Why is the decree from the king so urgent. Now, it's not the main intention in the chapter by any means, but it's hard to miss, really, the contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and uh, how he acts so rashly out of anxiety, and Daniel, how he acts um, so calmly from a sense of peace. I mean, you can't miss it, really. Well, at least once you see it, It stares you in the face. 
and he does show the wisdom that God has given him. He first of all simply asks an explanation from Arioch. I think it's interesting that he gets an answer. Some of these captains of king's guards might be quite uh, busy themselves and in a hurry just to get on with it and not to listen to anything anyone's got to say, especially a foreigner, a Jew, uh, an upstart who's come lately into the kingdom. Probably plenty of people would be envious. I mentioned that it was Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar's tactic to take people and to raise them, to proselytize them, use them for his own ends. I'm sure that caused quite a bit of resentment from locals who would be quite envious and, and resentful of people like Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah rising to high office in the king's court. But it's an interesting thing, I think, that the captain of the king's guard just tells Daniel the situation. Not only that, but when Daniel asks permission to go in and see the king, Ariah could have said, no, I've got my orders, allows him to go in and see the king. What does that tell you? Well, I think it tells you what we noticed already. In chapter 1, we're told that God brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Now, he's obviously brought him into the favor and goodwill of Arioch, the captain of the king's guard. Just again, like Joseph in Egypt, he was brought into the goodwill of Potiphar. And then, when he was cast into the dungeon, he was brought into the goodwill of the keeper of the prison. Now, uh, there's something in that. I mean, the Lord certainly holds the hearts of all, even the king, in his hand, and he can turn it whatever way he wishes, like a river of water, so the scripture says. But I think we're being taught another truth here, too, that simple, earnest godliness commends itself. Now, sometimes there may, there may be a, a merciless streak in the world that will be oblivious to it, but normally it's the case that the world recognizes such a thing and even respects it. There's something about Daniel that makes even unbelievers want to sit down and listen to him. They are able to speak to him themselves, and they are certainly willing to listen when Daniel speaks. Now, um, like I say, we can't always predict how the world will respond to us, but let us do our part. Let's see to it that we're that close to God, that we're that calm, that we have that understanding and that peace, and that we are able to give advice or counsel because we have been with the Lord ourselves. He that believeth shall not make haste, the scripture says. And there's nothing about Daniel that gives you the idea that he's, that he's in a flap. He's, he's just at peace, even when he's the one, in a sense, who ought to be flapping all over the place. He very much isn't. He asks an explanation and he gets it. Then he asks the king for time. Now you would have thought maybe that he would have immediately prayed and got an answer. <clears throat> but he decides to ask the king for time. Possibly the reason is that maybe Arioch wants to put him to death there and then. But I don't think so, largely for the reason that I've just said. But I wonder if the reason that he goes in straight away to see the king, to, to ask for the time, has something to do with the others that are dying. After all, the purge has already begun. 
And you'll notice that Daniel is interested in the wise men who are dying and doesn't want them to die. Immediately, if you cast your eyes down to verse 24 in the chapter, once Daniel gets the answer through prayer, we're told that Daniel went to Arioch, that's he goes back to him, and he went and said thus to him, Don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Now, if Daniel had been a subversive type of fellow, if he had been the kind of person who was motivated by something unclean and impure, he'd have allowed the purge to go on a good while before he made the thing known. But he doesn't do that, you see. He, d he doesn't see these wise men as uh, people who just need to die. He sees them as perhaps poor, misled souls. He doesn't want any bloodshed. He loves the Lord his God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength, but he loves his neighbor as himself. And even if this neighbor is so deviant from the truth as to be looking to astrology or whatever, well, Daniel doesn't want him to die. Certainly without coming to a knowledge of the true God. Stop the purge. I have the answer. And maybe that well might be the reason that he went into Nebuchadnezzar in the first place. Stop the process immediately. I will give you an answer. If I can't, I'll be accountable. But stop it just now. Because I will give you an answer. So he asks an explanation from Arioch. He asks for time from the king. And then, last of all, he asks help from God. A specific kind of help. And I mean that. Uh, sometimes our prayers are very vague. Sometimes they have to be. Uh, but sometimes they are when they shouldn't be. He doesn't just ask God to, to deliver him generally. God could do that in lots of ways if he wished. He asks for something specific, you see. And what he asks for is on the basis of who God is, who God is in relation to himself, and what God has done for him in the past. You see, because God saw fit to endow Daniel with a gift of interpreting dreams. In other words, when God would send a dream, when he would communicate through a dream or a vision, God, sorry, God gave Daniel the ability to interpret that dream. Now, Daniel puts two and two together, as wise Christians ought to be able to. If God has suddenly given me this, and of course he has suddenly given it, I think verse 17 of chapter 1 makes it very plain that the understanding of visions and dreams has come to Daniel because of his obedience in chapter 1. It's a special gift. God has bestowed something as a kind of reward, which of course he has to be humble about, but nonetheless that's what it is. But now, you see, he finds himself not that much later in a situation where this is exactly the kind of thing that's needed. Clearly God is striving with this monarch. And God has given me something that suits that situation. So he prays that God would give him the answer to this particular problem. It's an opportunity to speak for God. It's an opportunity to show God's power. And so he calls his friends to pray. 
Why does he call his friends to pray? Well, I don't think it's anything to do with the idea, which can sometimes be a little pagan, that the more you multiply the people in prayer, the more likely it is to get an answer. You've got to watch that kind of thing. Deluging everybody with your prayer request in the belief that if perhaps a million people ask, then it's bound to be answered. You've got to watch that kind of thing. It's a kind of subtle arm twisting. It's not that at all. Prayer is an appointed means of grace. It's an appointed means whereby we are strengthened one another by praying with one another. This decree, of course, concerns Hananiah and Asael and Mishael. They, too, are going to be put to death. But you see, when people love one another in the Lord, they like to be in one another's company and they like to pray one with another. And the prayer life strengthens one another. They, they lay hold upon the Lord together. And when they lay hold upon the Lord together, they, they lay hold upon one another just that little bit better. That's, you, you often find that when you gather for prayer. When you have gathered collectively to pray before the Lord, you, your love for each other grows and increases. You're praying for each other. You're praying for the other people. You're praying for the other Jews who were brought into captivity. You're asking God for help. It's good to pray. It's good to pray with one another. You'll notice, too, that when God answers, he answers Daniel not in a dream, but in a vision. Dreams, of course, come in the night normally, but always in sleep. Visions come in a wakened state. In fact, they come to people who are in prayer. In other words, when Daniel and his friends are in prayer, Daniel receives the answer from God. Now, we may not receive answers in a visionary state, but nonetheless, prayer is a place when you can expect answers to your questions. How fitting it is, whatever it is that bothers you, whether it's a prayer for guidance or a prayer for understanding of whatever, can you not expect that as you are in touch with God, that God will illuminate your mind and give understanding? Sometimes I think perhaps we don't get it because we don't seek it. An extended time of prayer may be the very thing that you need to get the answer to the thing that is bothering you. So he doesn't get the answer in a dream he gets it in a vision. In other words, he gets it during his prayer. And you'll notice, last of all, that when he gets it, he pours out his heart in thanksgiving to God. He's not proud of the fact that he's got this. He says um, in verse 20, can I just read these verses? Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. Now, I think he says that in connection with the, the vision that he's just been given. He, he's seen what Nebuchadnezzar saw, the successive kingdoms of men. And he says, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and raises them up. He gives wisdom to the wise. By that, he means that uh, God makes people wise. It is he who gives wisdom to the wise. It is he who gives knowledge to those who have understanding. It's not of themselves. He reveals deep and secret things. 
Verse 23, I thank you and praise you, God of my fathers, that you have given me wisdom and might. I don't think there's a whiff of pride about that. And you have now made me known to me, you have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. And uh, that kind of humility, I don't know, but there seems to be a little bit of a contrast with Arioch in verse 25. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but you notice when uh, when Daniel comes into Arioch and says that I have the answer, don't destroy the wise men. Arioch quickly brings him in before the king and says, I have found a man of the captives who will make known the, to the king the interpretation. Now, maybe it is reading too much, but just as there's no whiff of pride about the prayer, you get a little bit of it here. Arioch didn't find Daniel. Daniel found him. It had nothing real to do with him, but when people don't have God in their lives, they're quick to claim the power and quick to claim the glory, and they want to climb a ladder, and they want to be acknowledged. Um, but there's none of that in Daniel. He knows who he serves. His honor is not from men. It's from God. And uh, when you fear God and not people, you don't really worry about what honor people give you. You really don't. I mean, people might pass you by, build no statutes to your name, or write any books about you. Who cares? The Lord knows and the Lord sees and the Lord will honor his own in his own way and in his own time. But the people of the world just can't function like that. So Daniel is brought in before the tyrant and he's got an explanation to give which doesn't make necessarily pleasant hearing. But nonetheless, he's got to give it. We'll see it next time. Let's stand to pray. O Lord, our God, indeed you raise one up and you cast another down, and the times and the seasons are in your hand. And we bless you that whatever our question and what time our heart is overwhelmed and in perplexity, we have a rock that we can go to. We have a scripture that is infallible. We have its author, one in whom we can trust, and we can trust him implicitly for all things. Help us then, when we have such deep questions, to come to the right place for the answers. There is a God who reveals secrets. There is a God of mystery, a God who authored the greatest mystery of all, which is that he was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing our trespasses to us, rather making him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Lord, may we understand that and know the peace of God that passeth all understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our uh, last praise from God's Word is Psalm 119, uh, on page 408. And we sing to the tune, The Base of Harris.
Verse 97, verse 97. O how love I thy law. It is my study all the day. It makes me wiser than my foes, for it doth with me stay. Then all my teachers know I have more understanding far, because my meditation thy testimonies are. In understanding I excel those that are ancients, for I endeavored to keep all thy commandments. Notice the relationship between obedience and understanding. My feet from each ill way I stayed, that I may keep thy word. I from thy judgments have not sweared, for thou hast taught me, Lord. These four stanzas, 97 to 102. Let's stand and sing. grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.